Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. Good morning. So glad you're with us today. Um, we, uh, we had about 300 men at Camp Choye in Livingston this weekend, Men's Advance. Um, Oh, yeah, it was so, so good. Thank you for that golf clap. Um, uh, uh, How many of you were there this weekend and you came back early? Um, One... Two, all right. Uh, mo- most of them will be here at 11.33. Sorry, Jason. Uh, yeah, so uh, most of them are gonna be here at 11.30, so it's gonna just be uh, crunk up in the house this morning uh, at 11.30. So you may wanna stick around and uh, experience all that happened this weekend, but uh, it was so great. So we took this picture yesterday, and uh, it, was, it was a flawed picture because you can see there are trees in the way, so some people didn't make it. Um, uh, but uh, man, 300 strong. And I promise you, uh, this was my favorite men's advance. I've been a part of this for a long time through Woods Edge. And now uh, as we have kind of taken taken over uh, that name and, and, and lots of guys there, they're coming back changed. And they're coming back to take this community for the glory of God. And so we're really, really excited. And what was really cool is that Friday night, uh, usually, uh, how many of you went to youth camp growing up? You know, Thursday night? you know, uh, affectionately referred to as cry night, you know, where you have that emotional experience and you kind of resist God all week to get to Thursday night so that you can go down the altar with your friends and all cry together and sing friends or friends forever. Um, uh, and that's, that it's, it's, it's really moving. But here's the cool thing, from the jump Friday night, there was just some peculiar sense of the presence of God in the room. And men, uh, you, you haven't heard cool until a bunch of men are singing at the top of their lungs. And um, I took this video last night at the end of our last session together. Um, and I want, I want you to see it and hear it. So uh, turn on this video and crank it up so that we can all hear it.
So I could, uh, I could, uh, yeah, isn't it cool? I could bring a bunch of guys up here and they could tell you their experience, but here's all you need to know. 300 men were holding hands for like seven or eight minutes singing that song. That tells the story right there, um, but God was moving in a powerful way. And uh, if you were not able to be a part, if you chose not to be a part, whatever reason you weren't a part, man, we'll be getting this date out within the next 60 days. You need to save the date and make sure you don't miss next year. Um, it is unbelievable what God can do when he grabs a man's heart. When he grabs a man's heart, he's going to grab the whole family. And so um, you're going to hear stories for months and months and months of guys that have been changed, transformed in their whole families. Generations will be changed. And so uh, it's super exciting. Um, if you're here for the first time, we'd love to get to know you. So just hit the QR code in front of you that says connect. You can connect with us electronically um, or you can hit the QR code on the screen there. Uh, if you're online today, uh, it, we'll put it in uh, the comments section. Uh, we just want you to know that we're glad you're here. We want to invite you to be a part of our family. So just give us a little bit of information and we'll get back to you in the form of a phone call, a newsletter. Um, we're just glad you're here. Okay, we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter four today. We're gonna finish up the last three verses of Hebrew four, Hebrews four, verses 14 through 16. Um, but in order for us to uh, get to 14 to 16, we're gonna look at verse 13 as kind of a jumping off point. Um, and uh, before we get to the verse, um, I think we probably all have the story of a moment when we thought we got away with something only to be found out. Anybody? Yeah, that's all of us, you know. Um, <clears throat> we, we, uh, maybe you're a rule follower and that's never happened to you, but probably not. Um, maybe you don't remember it. Maybe you were just a youngster. But at the end of the day, uh, we, we all sometimes think that we've gotten away with something and then, man, it just kind of comes to light. And so um, I used to be a traveling musician. I was uh, a worship guy and I traveled uh, around. And so uh, this was probably 20 years ago or so. Um, I was... Uh, at a Washita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Who named that town, right? And so, uh, so I had finished up and I was driving back. I was on I-30. I was headed back to Dallas and I was in a rush just because um, I probably was trying to beat my record of getting there. And so I'm on my way back. I'm doing about 90, I'm sure. And I hit the state line. So Texarkana sits both in Arkansas and in Texas. And turns out I was speeding in both states, right? And so I, I I get through, I hit the state line, and now I'm rolling uh, through Texas and Texarkana, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but uh, if you get out on Fish Creek, uh, the popo, the the, hey, what's up, Siri? Um, uh, the popo's out in force these days. And so uh, I, I, I'm, I'm here on 30 and I look up and I didn't have time to tap my brakes. And there is a policeman and he's on the median, but it's like, there's a really thin median. And uh, he was taking life into his own hands at that point. Um, but what I noticed immediately, he flips his lights on and I knew that it was me because I was kind of leading the pack, all right? I was winning. I was out ahead of everyone. And so he flipped his lights off, but there's a bunch of traffic. And so he can't get out into traffic. And I'm looking around rearview mirror, hoping that he's not going to, you know, come after me. And I did what every uh, honest, good citizen would do. I tried to 
outrun him and hide from him. And so uh, I, uh, I took the next exit, I went over the bridge and I pull into this gas station and I'm just gonna sit there for a few minutes and hopefully I'm gonna see him fly by on the interstate and then I'm gonna get back on and chase him for a while, right? And so, um, so as I pull in, man, he comes flying around the corner, flying into the gas station, sirens and lights, like I'm a felon, right? And he pulls in, some of you are judging me right now, by the way, I can just feel it in the room. You're going to be fine. So, uh, so, so he comes in and so I, I just jump out of the car because I'm panicked. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this, but I jumped out of the car. Well, he jumps out of the car and he just yells, I need to see your license. And I said, I have to go to the bathroom. He said, give me your license. So I handed him my license and then I went and stood in the bathroom for about three or four minutes. And I'm just standing there just wondering, okay, what's my next move, right? What am I gonna do? And I thought, maybe I could just abandon the car and just run, right? But uh, um, so I come back out and he's holding his little clipboard and he's looking at my uh, license and he looks up at me, he goes, why'd you try to outrun me? I'm like, what are you talking about? I had to go to the bathroom. He goes, yeah. So what's your occupation? And I said, I'm a Christian musician. And I kid you not, he said, a Christmas magician, what's that? <laughs> well, I'm gonna pull baby Jesus out of a hat. So, uh, um, so I took the L, I got the ticket and I got in and moved on. Um, it did not work out in my favor. That was a very expensive ticket. So as we move forward into Hebrews chapter four, we got to look back at verse 13. So look at verse 13. It says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So what is it saying there? Nothing is hidden from the sight of God, nothing. So what does that mean? It means nothing is hidden from the sight of God. Nothing is hidden. Say that with me. Nothing is hidden. Say it again. Nothing is hidden. So what does that mean in your life? It means that your biggest secret, the thing that you uh, believe that you're going to take to your grave, it ain't hidden. So uh, for me, uh, for most of my life, I was a class A manipulator. And so I knew how to manipulate situations to get my way. I knew how to paint myself in the best light and the most favorable light, how to paint others in the worst light. And I was really good at it. I was a class A gaslighter. But at the end of the day, I, could, I was really good. So I could fool most of the people most of the time. I could fool some of the people some of the time. But you know who I never got one over on? God. And I think for some of you, uh, the best and brightest in the room, I know you're incredibly intelligent and you have made a living off of staying one step ahead and you think you've got everybody fooled. Here is the truth of the matter. Nothing is hidden from the sight of God. Nothing. Nothing. Say that with me, nothing. Man, I can't underscore this enough. We talk about this a lot. Some of you believe that you are gonna take a secret to your grave that somehow you're gonna get over, that you're gonna get to the end of your life and you're gonna be like, ah, I did it. But here's the thing, there are two people in the room that know the state of your heart, you and God. And so at the end of the day, you're not really fooling anybody. 
In fact, where you think you're staying one step ahead, you know what you're doing? You're staying in a cycle of shame, in a cycle of fear that is keeping you at bay and keeping you from the life that God has for you. And who do you think is speaking shame over you? Man, there's an enemy that every day of your life, when your feet hit the ground, He wants to convince you that you're not enough. He wants to convince you that you'll never be free. He wants to convince you that because of something you've done, because of the things in your life that are incongruent with the life of God, that that God could never use you. He wants to shame you into keeping you at bay. You know why he does that? Because if you are a follower of Jesus and you have the power of the living God flowing through your veins, your ceiling is virtually limitless. There is no telling what God can do in you and through you. And the enemy, man, just know he wants to keep you at bay because he knows how powerful it would be if you woke up and realized, wow, I've got more power than I could ever imagine. For me, he held me at bay for a very long time. And he had me living in, uh, I think about 2 Timothy 3, 5. Talks about the man who has a form of godliness but denies its power. Ugh. That sounds horrible, but that's the life I was living. A form of godliness with no power. That's like middle management, y'all. It's, it's, like, it's like, you know, you got the title, but really no authority to make any kind of decisions. And at the end of the day, man, that was the life I was living, a form of godliness with no power. But know this, every day, God is inviting you to being found out. He's inviting you to come and be laid bare. Why? Because it's the beginning of freedom where the enemy no longer can hold anything against you. And last week, remember what we said the result of that was? Rest. That when you lay your head on your pillow at night, the enemy doesn't own you anymore. That there's nothing he can hold against you. There's no way he can accuse you. You're free. And because you are free, you are at rest. You're at peace. Remember, there are always consequences for sin, right? Right? Somebody has to pay for your sin. And as a part of the Jewish sacrificial system, blood was required to pay for your sin. So if you were an early Jewish believer, you knew very well the Jewish sacrificial system. You knew that blood was required for your sin. In fact, Hebrews 9.22, we'll see it in a few weeks. Spoiler alert. It says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. Someone or something has to die for your sin. And so that's where we're gonna find ourselves in the passage today. So verse 13, nothing is hidden from the sight of God. Everything is laid bare. And now we move into verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So we're gonna unpack these three verses today. And man, this could be a game changer in your life. If you get this, this could change everything about how you live in the kingdom of God. So he starts out and he says, therefore. So this is how he started chapter four. Remember that? Remember verse one? He started therefore. And so anytime we see the word therefore, we gotta move back so that we understand what the therefore is there for. And so we know that in light, because there is nothing hidden from God, and in light of the fact that everything is laid bare, and because we have to give an account for our sin and failure, what he's saying is we need a mediator between us and God. We need a mediator. And that's where this idea of Jesus as a great high priest comes in. So he, he kind of brought this concept out at the end of chapter two. If you remember, chapter two, verse 17 and 18, he talks about it. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So you remember at the end of chapter two, he brought this up and and at the time I kind of glossed over and said, hey, this is gonna be a a major theme of chapters four through 10. And so we're gonna see this theme over and over and over as Jesus adds the better priest. He is the great high priest. If you were an original here, the author now is reframing Jesus in a way you can understand. So here's how. The inner sanctum of the temple, there was a a place called the Holy of Holies. And there was a a veil that covered the Holy of Holies. So uh, behind the veil is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was this coffin-like thing. And and inside of it, there were three things. There, There was the law of God, the Ten Commandments, there's a jar of manna, which, which represented the provision of God. And then there was the rod of Aaron, which represented the power of God. And these three things were housed inside the Ark of the Covenant. And it was very ornate and it had this seat on top of it. And if you remember, the children of Israel, everywhere they went, they would send the Ark of the Covenant out in front of them. They would send the presence of God out in front of them. So when they went into battle, they would send the presence of God out in front of them. And every time they did that, they won. Because they were allowing the presence and the power of God to precede them. And so eventually, you remember the story, uh, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Remember, he's dancing in his underwear and going crazy with all his might. And he brings it and he puts it in the temple. And there is this veil because the glory of God is just jumping off of the Ark of the Covenant. And so only the priest could go behind the veil to make sacrifice for your sin. And so what he would do is he would slaughter an animal, he would take that blood, he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would pour the blood all over the Ark of the Covenant. He would pour it all over the seed, it would spill down. I mean, this was really gory. I gotta imagine he comes out and he just looks like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? He comes out, there's blood everywhere. 
You see, sin is a bloody ordeal. Someone has to die for your sin. Something has to die for your sin. And, and blood is required as payment for your sin. So where does Jesus come into the picture? Jesus, the great high priest. So if you remember the day that Jesus was crucified, we've got different accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in Matthew chapter 27, look, verse 50, it says, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit, so he died. And look at what happened. At that moment, the curtain, the veil of the temple was torn in two, how? From top to bottom. What is the significance of that? Why was the temple veil torn in that moment? And not only was it torn, he was very specific. It was torn from top to bottom. Here's why. God tore the veil of the temple. It wasn't man that came in and ripped it from bottom to top. No, it was the power of God who tore the veil from top to bottom, signifying that no longer did you need the priest to go and make sacrifice for your sin. Jesus had become the better priest because he offered the better sacrifice. So if you were, you know, you're a guy and you come and you bring your unblemished lamb to the priest, before Jesus, he would slaughter it and he would take it and he would pour it. But you know what? That was not a sufficient sacrifice for your sin for all time. It was just until the next time. It was until the next day of atonement and you would have to come do it all over again. But now Jesus, the better priest, he offered a sufficient sacrifice for all people for all time. How cool is that? That you, on your best day, man, somebody's got to die for your sin. You or Jesus. And he chose to do it. He said, listen, you don't have what it takes. I'm going to take it all the way to the death. And it will be sufficient for you for all time. Just receive what I've done for you. Better sacrifice. Because he was perfect in every way. In John chapter 19, verse 30, I love, again, another account. When he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is what? Finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished? The work of the cross, it was finished. He was the better priest. He offered the better sacrifice. And his blood, his broken body, his shed blood was sufficient to pay for your sin. And that was what he was saying. It's, it's done. And remember what we said over the last few weeks. Remember it says that, that when he uh, resurrected from the dead and he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. What he was saying in that moment, he sat down because he's like, I'm done. I've done everything that I need to do. Your sins are forgiven once and for all. You just need to receive it. Just receive it. Now, let me ask you this question. Is that offer too good to be true? Does it feel too good to be true to you? I think in a perfect world, in a utopic Christian existence, I think we all intellectually believe that. But how many times do you take matters into your own hands? How many times do you act like a priest 
and try to weigh the scales of justice in your life by trying to do good things to outweigh the bad to make yourself feel more worthy. I think intellectually, we believe that the blood of Christ is sufficient for our sin. But the truth of the matter is, by the way we live, we are constantly trying to cover our own sense of unworthiness by the things we do. And I think about, remember, the priests have been doing this for centuries. It was part of the sacrificial system. But as we look in Hebrews 10 in a few weeks, it says day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Why? Because Jesus set a new ground rule. He said, it is finished. No longer do you have to go to the priest. No longer does a person, that, that's kind of, uh, we see that in some streams of faith today, don't we? that there's still a man at the center of it? Do you have to go confess or you have to uh, go to a person in order to be made clean? The problem is, that's really anti-Jesus. Jesus himself said, it's done. You don't have to do that anymore. And so every time you take matters into your own hands, what you're doing is you're diminishing the work of the cross in your life. Jesus, a better priest, offered a better sacrifice. That's why he's called the great high priest. But look, it says we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. Now the Greek phrase there, um, the NIV is actually not a great translation of that because it's not that he ascended into heaven. He ascended through the heavens. So what does that mean? It means that kind of, he is not constrained by our idea of time and space. The time-space continuum doesn't apply to him. So when we think about, man, we're gonna jump in a rocket ship and we're gonna fly to Mars. Well, when we get to Mars, we're still in the heavens, right? There's no place that you could physically go that you would not still be in the heavens. And yes, this says, Jesus kind of blew through the heavens. He's on the other side of it. In order for us to, to experience the same thing, we would need, say, a DeLorean, a flux capacitor, and we need to get it up to 88 miles an hour, right? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Back to the future, check it out. But the truth of the matter is, we have no concept of uh, Jesus lives outside of our time. And we get so impatient because we don't see God working within our time constraints. We don't see him moving within our time constraints. And he lives outside of your time and your space and he's always working and he's always working for your good and inviting you into this life with him. So he ascended through the heavens and he said because of this, because he's a great high priest, because he's not bound by your idea of time and space, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Hmm. What do you think he means there? He's saying talk is cheap, y'all. You hang out in our city, in our community, and if you went and knocked door to door today and you just asked this question with no commentary, are you a Christian? 
I would be willing to bet that somewhere between 90 and 95% of the people would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And if you didn't ask a follow-up question like, what does that mean to you? You would just go away going, yeah, they're Christian. I mean, there, there are a lot of people that say they're Christian. And, and he's saying, hey, listen, the cost of following Jesus, if you follow Jesus in this culture, you're dead. Right? You're going to get eaten by a lion. You're going to get boiled in oil. You're going to get your head chopped off. You're going to be crucified. Just think about the worst possible, slowest possible death. And that's probably what's going to happen if you're following Jesus in this culture. And so people were falling away at a rapid rate. And he's saying, hey, listen, don't fall back into this religious place where you're trying to prove your own value and prove your own worth. No. Hold on to the, to the faith that you profess. Talk is cheap. The true test of your faith will be when it's tested. Do you realize that? Faith in peacetime, that's easy. True faith becomes faith when it's tested. If you're only following what you can see, that is not faith, that's good eyesight. The true test of faith is when crunch time comes. And he's like, hey, because he's a great high priest, because he doesn't live, he's not constrained by your ideas of time and space. Man, hold on. Hold firmly to the faith that you profess. Because here's the thing. If you don't, you're just invalidating the cross. You're invalidating what Jesus died for. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So he's taking us back to this concept of the God-man. Jesus as the God-man. He spends all of chapter one talking about Jesus being fully God. He's the creator. He is the, uh, verse one, or chapter one, verse three. Uh, he says, listen, if you wanna know God, look at Jesus. He is the exact representation of his being. If you wanna know God, look at Jesus because he is God, fully God. So Jesus became the better sacrifice because he was perfect in every way. He was a better sacrifice. He was a complete sacrifice. Remember John the Baptist, when he saw him, what did he say? Behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was saying, look, behold, the perfect sacrifice, the unblemished Lamb who's gonna take away the sin of the world. What's the implication there? Jesus is gonna die. He hadn't died yet when he said that. John the Baptist was, was prophesying the death of Jesus in that moment. Fully God. But also all of chapter two reminds us that he was fully man. Fully God, fully man. The God took on the constraints of flesh and blood. If you remember in Hebrews 2.7, he says that he was made a little lower than the angels for a time. This whole idea that he took on the limitations of being a man. And I don't know if you're aware, but you're very limited. 
as a human being, right? And he took on, willingly took on those limitations. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter two, starting in verse six. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing but taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He took on the limitations of man. He willingly took on the limitations of man. Why was it important that he was fully man? Because he is completely relatable to you. Completely relatable. How does that ring in your mind right now? Do you really believe it? Do you believe that he relates to you? Because I think for me, I immediately begin to think, well, I mean, he is God, right? How can he relate to me? He's God, I'm not. So, so how is it that, that Jesus relates to me as being fully man because he's fully God? Well, the verse here says that he can empathize with my weakness because he was tempted in every way but without sin. He didn't give in to the temptation. So this is super important. It's super important that we recognize that Jesus was tempted in every way. So think about uh, your biggest temptation. So just raise your hand and tell me what your biggest temptation is. Nobody? Okay. Um, Here's the thing. So that means that Jesus was tempted to lust after women. What? What? That Jesus was tempted to, to say things or do things. That, that there, there are things, anything that you can come up with in your mind right now, Jesus was tempted to do. How's that sit with you? You're like, well, my Jesus didn't do that. Well, then your Jesus isn't in the Bible. Because it says he was tempted in every way. He just didn't give in to the temptation. Did you know that temptation is not a sin? Some of you beat yourself up over things that come into your mind and you convince yourself that you're sinning because you thought it. There's a difference between being tempted and acting on it because it says here Jesus was tempted in every way. He just didn't act on it. But it makes him relatable, right? It gives us hope that, hey, listen, I can't overcome temptation in my life. I don't have to give in to temptation. I don't have to live in this world where the devil made me do it. I can actually have victory over sin. Does it mean that I'll never sin again? No, but it means that the power of Christ that rests in me gives me the power to overcome sin. You don't have to sin anymore. Some of you gave up on that concept a long time ago. And who do you think convinces you that you don't have what it takes? There's an enemy again that just wants to shame you into believing. Jesus can't relate to you. He didn't know where you've been. He didn't know what you've been through. He didn't know you're hurt. The enemy will accuse you and accuse you and accuse you and he'll keep you in this place of shame and fear. Fear. Man, I just got to tell you, 
I scratch my head sometimes at the way that we present Jesus to people. Hey, um, do you want to go to hell? Like, raise your hand if you want to go to hell this morning. Anybody? Yeah, no. But we go knock on doors and go, do you know where you go if you died tonight? You're like, no. Well, you got two choices, heaven or hell. I'll take heaven. Okay, pray this prayer. And then one day when you die, you'll get to go to heaven. Guys, that is fear-based. And I'm not saying that there's not truth in that, but it's not the completeness of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel, here it is. Are you ready? There's a new sheriff in town. The king has come and he's ushered in a new kingdom and he's inviting you to join him in what he's doing to redeem the world. That's a different way of framing it, right? That's something I can get behind. Because know this, if fear drives you to Jesus, the same fear that drives you to Jesus will drive you away from him in a heartbeat when things don't go your way. And the enemy rules and fear and shame and he does it in such a way that he keeps you at bay. I found this on the web. Did you, Siri? She found it on the web. Could you hold on to that? Thank you. He was tempted, but he didn't give in to temptation. This is super important. In order to be the perfect sacrifice, he needed to be unblemished. Otherwise, he'd simply be a good man. He'd just be a good guy. So, if I took a bullet for you today, would you be grateful to me? I mean, I'd be dead, right? So, I'd take a bullet for you, and you'd probably talk about me Maybe for the rest of your life. Hey, remember that time that Greg Johnson saved my life? And I would be some kind of hero. But I'd be dead, y'all. That's the difference between me and Jesus. He took a bullet for you and then he rose from the dead. This whole idea, man, if I died for you, it really means very little other than you get to live a little longer. I would just be another in a long line of good men that died for a cause. I might be a modern day William Wallace. But you know what we know about William Wallace? He's dead. He's not mostly dead. He's all the way dead. But Jesus conquered death. In his perfection, he was unblemished and he died on your behalf. That's what makes him a better sacrifice. Fully God, fully man. So when we think about the temptation that he overcame, we don't get an exhaustive picture. Like we, we know very little about Jesus growing up. We know he was born. We know that story. Um, we know that when he was 12, he stayed in the temple and taught and Mary and Joseph got halfway home and realized he wasn't there. That's weird. Um, call CPS, right? And they came back and found him and he's in the temple teaching at age 12. The next thing we know, he's 30 and he's being baptized into ministry. So there's a lot we don't know. We don't know how he was tempted as a teenager but you know how you were tempted as a teenager, so we just kind of have to assume if he was tempted in every way, yet without sin, he went through some stuff. 
He went through puberty, right? But we do know in Matthew chapter four, right after he's baptized, he fasts and prays. He goes out into the wilderness. He fasts and prays for 40 days. At the end of that 40 days, the enemy comes and tempts him. And so you can read about it later, but here are three ways that he was tempted. He says, hey man, here's some bread. Have at it. So he offers him some sustenance because he's got to be weak at this point, right? If he's fully man, if you didn't, like for some of you, if you didn't eat lunch today, you would be freaking out, right? Brother didn't eat for 40 days. No food, no water. And the enemy comes and says, hey, here's some bread. He offered him sustenance. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Then he takes him up to the top of the temple and says, hey, throw yourself down. The angels are gonna catch you. What's he offering him? He's offering fame and glory, right? He's saying, hey, I'm about to make you famous, yo. Jump on off. Watch what's gonna happen. Jesus is like, nah. And my favorite one is he offers him all the kingdoms of the world if he will bow down and worship him. He offered him something he already had. I mean, that's where we talk about the enemy being really smart. That's not really a smart move. Because I'm sure that Jesus is like, bro, I own you. But what's he offering him? All the riches of the world. So think about it. For a lot of us, we're scared to death that we're not gonna have enough. We live from a life, from a place of scarcity, right? We're scared to death of what we're gonna lose and so we're hoarding. All of us at some point have wanted to be famous in some way, right? We've wanted all the, all the fame and glory for ourselves. We wanna be hoisted up and carried out of the stadium. We don't love to have all the kingdoms of the world. We'd love to have that power and influence, right? All of that was offered to Jesus. You know what he said? No, thank you. No, thank you. Why? Fully God, fully man. He was on a mission and he wasn't gonna be deterred. As followers of Jesus, you were on a mission. You've been given your marching orders. It's all right here. And the more you give yourself over to it, the more focused you get on the mission of Jesus for your life. You get focused and you're undeterred. And the enemy will come and go, hey, I got something for you. Just a 1% course correction. It's not bad. Just turn just a little bit. Don't take the bait. Why? Because you've got a high priest that can empathize with that. He's been there. He's been there. He knows. Just without sin. Okay, look at verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So this is where we land today. He says, let us approach the throne of grace. So that's a paradox there. Throne, what does is, what is the throne connote? Power, authority, justice. The one seated on the throne makes the rules, right? But he calls it a throne of what? Of grace. That's a picture of the mercy of God. And so we see this idea of a throne, but it's a throne of grace. It doesn't make sense to us because when we think about a throne, we think about the person with the power and the one with the power makes the rules. 
Yet he says, this is a gracious throne. This is a merciful throne. We approach God who's completely just, meaning he deals with your sin, but he's completely gracious and merciful, meaning you don't get what you deserve because of his sacrifice. And what does he say? Approach the throne of grace, how? With confidence. Now think through that for a second. Think about the last time you blew it. It's probably this morning at some point, right? But think about the last time you blew it and think about the way that we typically approach God when we fail. How do we approach God when we fail? <sighs> From a place of shame, right? Like, like we're holding back the smiter of all smiters who's gonna take us out. And maybe that is your life. That you look at your life and you're like, man, I have blown it. And I know that God is just waiting. He's waiting to get me alone so he can take me out. That's not confidence. In fact, here's what is more likely. We run from the throne of grace and not to the throne of grace. When we sin, we go and hide. And you come by it honestly. Remember Genesis chapter three? Sin enters the world, Adam and Eve, they eat the apple and what's the first thing they do? They realize they're naked, they fashion some fig leaves and then they go hide in the woods. Then here comes God in the cool of the day. Adam, Adam, bro, where are you? Where are you? I'm hiding. He didn't run to the throne of grace. He ran away from the throne of grace, from a place of shame, from a place of judgment, from a place of fear. He said, I heard you coming and I was afraid, so I hid. What does God say? Uh, who told you you were naked? What is God doing? He's trying to draw him out. He's trying to draw Adam out of his hiding. Hey man, I'm here to restore you. Yeah, you blew it. But I'm here to bring you back in. Let's talk about this. I love here we approach with confidence so that so that we may receive mercy and grace in our greatest time of need. See, for a lot of you, you're running from the throne of grace, but expecting full grace and mercy. You're running away from the one who wants to bestow all the grace and mercy and forgiveness you can choke down because what he does when you come to him and you bring it, he's like, hey, listen, I already covered that. I covered that at the cross. The blood that I shed was sufficient for all sin, for all time. Thank you for coming and confessing, for coming into agreement that, that what you did was wrong. Man, we're both on the same page. Let's move past it. My grace covered you. You're already covered. 
You're already covered. Remember when the enemy offered him all the kingdoms of the world? He offered him something you are, he already possessed? Know this, when you come to God, when you have a relationship with Jesus and you come to God and say, please forgive me, he's like, I already forgave you. Do you not understand the cross is the final word in your life? Thank you for confessing because what that lets me know is that you and I understand that what you did is hurting you. So let's talk about how that doesn't happen again. But I forgive you. So when we approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we're forgiven, we come and we receive the fullness of the grace and mercy that he wants to pour all over you. What would it be like to live in a world where you are experiencing on the daily the grace and mercy of God in your life? Do you realize you don't have to sin anymore? Doesn't mean you won't, but you don't have to. Jesus overcame it and has shown us the way to freedom. And he's like, hey, approach my throne. Approach it with confidence so that I can just pour out all the grace and mercy you need to move forward. I'm not mad at you. I'm not ashamed of you. I want you to move forward in the freedom that I'm offering you. So what does this mean for us today? Here are four things that I want you to think about as we land the plane today. Number one, no more hiding. No more hiding. First of all, no more hiding because it doesn't do any good. You can't hide from God. Nothing is hidden from God. You can't run from God. So maybe it's time to give up the retreat and just be laid bare before him. What would it be like just to be laid bare before him? Hey, I can't run anymore. Some of you are exhausted trying to run away from God. And every time you turn, he's right there. You can't run from him. And the question is, why would you? Because he's offering you mercy and grace. Everything you could ever want. Everything you could ever desire. So number one, no more hiding. Number two, Jesus is a better priest. He's a better priest because he offers a better sacrifice. Again, the, the God-man made full payment on the cross. He shattered the sacrificial system. There's no more veil. There's no more trying to be made acceptable to God. And there's no more going to man to make yourself more acceptable. There's no more trying to work your way back to God. No, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. He's a better priest because he tore the veil and said, now you have equal access to the Father through me. That should be the best news that you hear today. No more striving, no more hiding, no more trying, just receiving. He's a better priest. Number three, Jesus has been there. He's been there. Wherever you've been, he's been there. Wherever you are, he's been there. He struggled through humanness just like you. But here's the only difference between you and him. He overcame it. 
He overcame sin. He did not succumb to temptation. And guess what? That's why he died. Because he knew you did. That you needed the sacrifice that he offers. He's been there. And so because of that, number four, run to the throne of grace. Run, don't walk to the throne of grace because he's good. God doesn't want you to run and hide. And I love in Genesis three, what did he do? He was drawing Adam out. Adam, where are you? Where are you? When you feel like you need to hide, when you feel like you're unacceptable, he looks at you and he's like, Sam, bro, where are you? Jason, where are you? Matt, where are you, bro? He's drawing you out. He's inviting you into relationship. And we have misunderstood his call that somehow we're about to get hit with it. When really he's saying, hey, I'm not mad at you. I just want to talk about it. He's the father in Luke chapter 15. In the parable of the prodigal son, he's literally the dad that's standing on this road day after day, waiting for his prodigal son to come home. And remember when he saw him off at a distance, what did he do? Say, you're not going to like what's coming to you when you get here. You come to my throne, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take out a pound of flesh. I'm going to let you work it off. And then maybe at some point, is that what happened in that story? No. He takes off running after him. Lieutenant Dan, like he's, he's running straight after his son. That is the love of the father. When you start approaching the throne of grace with confidence, what you find is he runs after you because he's inviting you into this love relationship. He is not holding your sin against you. He is full of mercy and grace and he wants to lavish it on you. And you hear that today and you're like, well, that is not the God that I know. That's because there's an enemy that wants to convince you that he's vengeful, that he's angry, that he's judgmental, that he wants to shame you into following him and keep you subservient. And he's like, hey, it's not who I am. I love you. I love you to death, literally. And I'm inviting you into a life of adventure to join me in what I'm doing in the world. He's a better priest. He offered a better sacrifice. It's time to stop hiding. No more hiding. No more isolation. 